I'm so glad you're here tonight, and uh, we're going to just dive right in. I, I realized I made a mistake. Uh, I only make one a day. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Can't keep up with the numbers. But um, I'm going to have to go somewhere into our schedule and combine some stuff because I thought Revelation 4 was one of the lessons I had segregated to do by itself. I'm supposed to actually be finished with five, so we're already like a little bit of a chapter behind, but that's okay. Um, Laura and I talk about this often at home, and she's like, you know, it's okay, just take a breath, slow down, but my goal is to get through the book of Revelation by mid-May. So, I mean, that's what we're going to aim to do, but uh, so I want you to go ahead and get your study guide out, and uh, we're going to do another thing. I want to put this picture back up. And just kind of remind you what we did last week. We talked through Revelation 4. And uh, here was the high points of that lesson last week. That there's this court of heaven. This is this image we get. There's this gap between chapter 3 and chapter 4. Uh, for those of us that are pre-millennial, pre, uh, pre-mill, pre-trib guys. We believe that's when the tribulation happens. It's between chapters 3 and 4. But the text doesn't say that. It's a theory. That's what theories are. But now we get into this scene, John has stepped into heaven, and he sees the court of heaven. And so, uh, the three points from last week that we talked about was that the court of heaven is a place that's other than earth, uh, which is true. I mean, it's heaven. That's why God is in heaven. When he left the Garden of Eden, he went to a different place. We also talked about how that heaven was populated with beings greater than the earth. And so, um, let's just, just quick, quick flashes here. What was one of the groups of beings that was in that court? Anybody want to name those? The what? Well, that's coming up, but I'm talking about just in Revelation 4, there were two groupings of beings. There were the four living creatures and the 24 elders. And we kind of debated and talked about how the text doesn't really reveal if the elders are human or if they're heavenly beings like angels. So we just kind of left it at, hey... They are heavenly beings. We don't know. There's not enough information in the text to reveal that. I feel like, personally, that they are heavenly beings, but um, I've got some reasons even today in the text that will defend that. And then finally, we talked about how that the court of heaven is filled with worship above all the earth. And so, like, some of the highlights I heard from people talking about the class was, you know, you've got the, the four living creatures, and they're covered with eyeballs, I mean, it, it really sounds disgusting, but, but I mean, they see everything, and here's God seated on his throne on a sea of glass, able to see everything. Nothing is outside of what God can see, and so that's kind of where we left it last week uh, with the song that they sang. And now we're in chapter 5, and we're going to go into kind of the next uh, part of this setting that's going to introduce a problem. And so to do that today, I want to introduce you to a, another type of Bible study. It's, it's similar to the one we've talked about, but, but methods, you know, everyone has their own way of doing things. This is called the SOAP method. Um, do you, I don't know if you like acronyms. I mean, we use an acronym here for our purpose statement, H-O-P-E, and we've built around that. Um, but this Soap has nothing to do with what you're doing with this Bible study method. You're not cleaning anything. That's what soap is usually used for, right? But it's just a way to remember the steps of this Bible study method. And so like the one I've taught you, the inductive method, 
of doing observation, interpretation, correlation, and application is the process. This study method is devotional in nature. In other words, it's going to incorporate some of the things we talked about a few weeks ago with the other method, but it's going to add some things. So in the SOAP method of studying the Bible, the first thing you need to have is a scripture. You need to have a scripture. And I think it's so important to take the habit of writing. How many of you write in cursive? Everything you have, you write in cursive. A lot of you ladies do. My my cursive is awful. Um, in college, I used to like have to reinterpret my notes because my cursive was just terrible. Um, but I learned to take my time and try to shape my notes. Isn't it sad that we don't teach kids cursive anymore? I think it's a law. I personally uh, think it's a lost art. Homeschooler, so homeschool curriculum. Does it have? Does it have cursive in it now? All right, so we do. We do have cursive in that. When I, in college, I actually shifted to print. So I could read my, my handwriting. And then, thank God, laptops came along so I didn't have to worry about handwriting in seminary. I could, I could type it. Um, but I think it's so cool to write. When I'm studying, even in my Greek study, in my, and try to in my Hebrew, Hebrew's a lot harder to write. But with, with Greek, I always try to rewrite it. On a Sunday morning, if one of our other guys is preaching and I'm down there with a passage and you see me up here writing, usually I'm writing out the Scripture. It's just a good discipline. So the first step in this method is to write out the verse in your journal or in some, on some, some kind of, of uh, paper. But then, here you sh- this should look familiar, observation. There's no different. That's the first step in an inductive method. Same step here is to write down observations about that scripture. And, and, and again, keeping observation right where it is. Don't try to add to it. Don't try to make it say something else. Don't try to go ahead and skip to interpretation an um, application, just let it say what it's going to say. So, for example, in a few minutes, we're going to look at, there's a couple of specific words and some specific characters. Don't read into it. Don't go ahead and say the lamb is Jesus. Just say there's a lamb. That's what you're going to do in a few moments. So I already give you one of, of the ones we're going to do. And then this one skips the uh, interpretation and the correlation. It goes to application. What can you apply from what you observed in the text? That's the, it's the end goal at the end of the day, right? And remember, application should be something you're doing. Now, sometimes there's a truth to be drawn from that, but isn't that interpretation? Application is, do this. So, we'll, we're going to practice this in a minute. And the last one here, and I love this part, but that's why I said this is devotional, is to write out a prayer based on what you have read. Write out some kind of prayer. Maybe that's a a prayer of commitment, and you're saying, Lord, I want to commit myself to X, Y, or Z. Or maybe it's a prayer of, of adoration. You just look, Lord, thank you for your grace. I mean, whatever it is, but I, but I think it needs to be focused upon what it is that you've seen in the Scripture. How many of you were in my class um, last year where we talked about praying Scripture? Anybody? Some of you were in here. I mean, there are Scriptures that were written as prayers, and it's a really cool uh, practice if, when you find those prayers in Scripture to take and pray those Scriptures. Because the Word of God stands forever, right? And so I think it's, it's really cool practice. So here's what we're going to do. I want you to turn to Revelation 5, verse number 5. Revelation 5, verse number 5. 
if it's okay, I want to read it, but then on your, in your study guide, I've given you these four steps. Don't have to spend a long time with this. Maybe make a couple of applic- uh, observations, an application. It's kind of hard to draw application from narrative literature. It's easy in the epistles, the letters of Paul, to go, yes, I need to X, Y, and Z. But when, it, when you get to narrative literature, apocalyptic literature, it's a little bit harder but what I want you to do is I want you to read, um, I want you to read uh, Revelation 5.5 and I want you to use this SOAP method on that. So we're practicing together. But let me give you some tips. These are free, all right? You might want to write these down. Number one, when you're reading, learn how to paraphrase. All of my kids, um, they, they've been at Tallulah Falls. When they've gone through the middle school English program, and I'm sure they do this in pu- other public school settings too, but they'd give them a novel. We had to buy the novel. Why? Because they had to write in the margins and paraphrase every paragraph in the book to force them to read it for substance. So, you know, if you read, when you read this verse, paraphrase means put it in your own words. And why is that important? Because if you put it in your own words, you have to process what you've read to be able to put it in your own words. So that's a tip. Uh, Another tip is, I want you to notice in this verse specifically the emotional context. We'll talk a lot about the grammatical context, the historical context, and different contexts that we find Scripture in. But there is an emotional context. I mean, the people that are writing these books have emotions. And sometimes they're writing about emotions, and you're going to see that in this verse. For this verse, Revelation 5.5, there's a couple of cross-references you might want to look at. I'll leave this up on the screen. Uh, specifically, uh, Isaiah 11.1 1 and Genesis 49.9. Because it'll help to make a little sense. As again, if we're reading apocalyptic literature, we're going to see some weird things today too. And then finally, when you think about the prayer step, think intentionality. You really think about, like, Lord, what is it that you're calling me to pray from this verse. So, I want you to take a few moments. I want you to go ahead and read that verse. Uh, maybe David could kick us on some music and um, spend some time. Read it, observe it, name one application, and then maybe just jot down something that you would pray from that verse. So, while you're still working, let me go ahead and just jump right in here. And let's look at this verse. Uh, I'm reading from the New American Standard. Uh, the verse says, And one of the elders said to me, Observationally, we see the word and at the very beginning of that sentence, which means what? <laughs> Stuff in the verse before it, right? Context important, connects back. One of the elders said to me, well, Elders, who's the elders? We were introduced to them in chapter 4, the 24 elders, right? What did they wear? White, and what else? They wore crowns. God, see there? Context matters. So that one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Let me just go ahead and tell you, this isn't like I'm shedding a few tears. This is like sloppy crying. It's what it literally means. This is messy crying. John is tore up. We'll get there. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book 
and its seven seals. So you now speak back to me. Say it where I can hear it, because I'm going to repeat it so our people listening online can, can hear what I'm saying, what you're saying. Give me some observations. I'll put mine up in a minute, but give me your observations. Basic observations from this verse. I think y'all just said the same thing. What would you say, Miss Lou? Same thing. So, so there's a lion. Behold, the lion, and he's from what? The tribe of? So how many of you went back and looked at Genesis 49.9? What is chapter 49? Does anybody know what Genesis 49 is talking about? Do you know what's going on in that chapter? It's kind of loaded because you probably haven't, unless you like try every year to read through the Bible and get through Genesis and stop in Exodus before you break that uh, New Year's resolution. I'm making fun. Y'all get, come on, y'all got to laugh tonight. How many people have read the book of Genesis 20-something million times and they get to Exodus and stop? about the middle of January because they break the New Year's resolution or they get to the, uh, the, the stuff about the tabernacle and the effort and all the things of the... Anyway, so you get down there, and, but that chapter is talking, it's where, uh, excuse me, um, it's where Jacob has called his sons together. He's about to die. And he's going to basically bless his sons. And he starts going through the birth order. Judah is number four. He goes from Reuben to Simeon to Levi. And you know what he does for them when he's blessing them? He doesn't. He actually blesses them out. He fusses at them. He condemns them. But he gets to Judah. And if you remember, uh, somewhere around chapter 37, 38, 39, they all send Joseph off into slavery. And there's this little bitty chapter after we find Joseph in Potiphar's house where Judah has a chapter all to himself because Judah married and he had he had three sons and his oldest son married someone named Tamar remember this story Um, for those listeners online we're gonna leave it a little bit g-rated for a moment because the first son dies the second son is supposed to give children to the firstborn but does not he dies and the third one Judah's like I'm not um No, 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 no. Tamar, just go back home for a little while, and uh, we'll come get you later. Well, he never goes goes back to get her when the third son comes of age. And in that culture at the time, it was important to give children to the firstborn. Well, the firstborn is dead. So, Tamar, I mean, upset, she goes and dresses as a harlot. Y'all remember this? Stands by the way. And he goes into her thinking he's, she's a temple prostitute, has children. Whole chapter dedicated to Judah. Is Judah an upright man? Does Judah seem like somebody who, who ought to be praised for anything or given responsibility? Scolds, starts with Reuben, scolds him, scolds Simeon, scolds Levi, and then gets to, to Judah and said, your brothers are going to follow you. Just out of the blue, gives this blessing and talks about and alludes to him being like a what? Like a lion. How many of you have ever been to the zoo? I remember going, we went to, we went to Disney years ago and we went through Animal Kingdom. And this doesn't happen, I don't think, very often, but we came around the Pride Rock and, and that big male was sitting up on top of the, of the rocks and it roared. And it was so majestic. 
as he's stretched out and he's, he's born with a crown. I mean, just majestic. And any of you that have read the Chronicles of Narnia and you know the character Aslan and how majestic he is and how he represents a type of Christ in those movies, in that storyline, yes, I'm sorry, I've elaborated so much. We're supposed to be doing observation, but he is the lion. He is the king. But what else did you observe in this verse? Where did this root of David stuff come in from? What is that, why is that important? Well, that's the Isaiah 11.1 1 passage. He said that there would be a root. After David's lineage is cut off, there would be a root that would spring forth. It, it gives, back, um, gives us back memories when God promised to David in 2 Samuel 7 that there would never cease to be someone on his throne. But his, his, the, the rule may have been cut off, but now you've got the eternal king. And so, what else did you observe? I'm sorry, I'm jumping ahead. I, I, love, I love this chapter, and it's, there's a lot. I'm sorry, I love it. What else y'all observe? What about the word overcome? What does that mean? What does it mean to overcome something? It's what? Yeah, you, conquer, you conquered something. And that overcoming gives him some right to do something. What's he going to be able to do? Yeah, he's going to be able to open this book and this seven seals. So right off the bat, I hope that you can see that this is a prime example of a verse that you cannot read in isolation. When you're doing Bible study, there's a lot of verses that could stand alone. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I could say that and interpret that to mean... I'm going to make the three-point shot in the basketball game. But when you read it in its context, Paul's talking about, I have learned to be content in whatever situation I'm in, whether I have a lot or whether I have little. The the context is contentment. I can function. I can live. I can survive. I can thrive in all things through Christ who gives me strength. But this verse, (laughs) good luck interpreting this one by itself. You have to have the context of the rest of this chapter To know, why is John weeping? Who is the lion? Who is Judah? Why is there a root mentioned in here? How does a lion become a root? And what is this book? And seven seals, is this another animal? I mean, are these seven barking seals? Is this kind of like singing the 12 days of Christmas, seven, seven seals a leap? I mean... You know, I mean, what, what are these things? You cannot read this one in isolation. And so, they were, there's, this was my list of observations. There's elders. John's interacting in the court. John has been moved to tears. He's crying. That's a fact. He's named this lion, but verse 6 is going to show him to also be a lamb. So, he's a root, he's a lion, and he's a lamb. This is one freaky creature. We'll explain that. He's the root of David, meaning he's a descendant of the Davidic line. He is Messiah. We know that there's a scroll with writing inside and on the back. That's this book. And that's from the context. So I want you to see that. I want you to see, I want you to wrestle with that to know you can't just read this verse outside of its context. And so my application. Because by the time we get to this point, we know who the lion is, right? We know who this lamb is, right? Who is it? 
Say his name. Come on, don't be bashful. His name's Jesus. And we know that because the Bible context teaches us that he is that lamb. And so my application is right there. What's that word say? Worship and pay him homage. That's something you do, right? That's what application means. And so I wrote this prayer. I said, Lord, you are mighty. You are powerful, yet you are loving and compassionate. Whatever my circumstances may be, let me take comfort knowing that Jesus is both the lion and the lamb. Can I really? I'm asking God, help me take comfort knowing that you are the lion, the conqueror, the king, and the sacrificial lamb who died in my place. That's what I want to know. And then I said, the king and the means of redemption, in these words, may you be magnified. That was my prayer. I don't know if you wrote one, if you didn't write one. I'm just showing you what I can do or what I try to do or what I practice to do. So again, this is a devotional way of studying the Bible. If you, how many of you do keep a journal? If you don't mind sharing, say, I keep a journal. I keep a notebook with me. I'm not consistent. I don't do it every day. It doesn't look like a diary, but I do use it to take notes. And I've got a box full of notebooks that I've collected over the years. I think it's just a good practice to sit down and journal your thoughts, journal your prayers. Um, if you're an iPhone user, recently they came out with a new app. And I don't remember what the name of it is for some reason. I think I just dropped it in a folder. But it's, it actually is called Journal. It looks like a, um, almost looks like a butterfly. But you can go on, if you're an iPhone user, you can click on that and you can add pictures to it from your day. You can make comments and notes. And I don't know, I mean, it's just cool to go back and look at what your brain was going through. I got one out there one day and was just reading like what was happening in my life 20 years ago. What I was thinking, what I was feeling, what I was struggling with. And, and you know what I found out? Some, some things haven't changed. Y'all, y'all realize that? Like if you could go back and talk to your 20 or 30 year old self, unless you're 20 or 30 now, you could go back and talk to your 10 year old self. But to see, you know, your understanding of the world, the world's not very different than it used to be. It's taken different forms and shapes, but it's still basically the same. And so what I want us to do is I want us to dig into this text, and we're just going to start right at the very beginning. We're going to start at Revelation 5.1. We're going to, we're, there's going to be three sections that we're going to cover in this. We're going to see a problem, we're going to see a solution, and then we're going to see a response. So the setting that we saw in Revelation 4, the court of heaven now is being focused on activity. So as he described what happened in the court of heaven, the one sitting on the throne, the, the rainbow of emerald around him, shining, burning, seven lamps, 24 elders, the four living creatures, and when the 24 elders cried out, holy, 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 the elders fell down. We get this scene of heaven, right? Got the, got the court of heaven. Super stuff. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to dig into this a little bit deeper. And can you entertain me for just a moment to talk to you about... The Avengers. Some of you are laughing. Who does not know about Marvel Comics? Iron Man, Thor. Okay, I'm going to help you out. I'm just going to tell it like a story, okay? It's, it's going to be beautiful. It's going to be wonderful. Okay. I'm sure Trump is a... Is a I'm sorry, this is online. So in the movies, um, there's, this, there's this group of heroes that have come together... 
to fight evil. One of the characters is named Thor, and Thor isn't from, from the earth, and he carries around this hammer, and this hammer has a name called, no one knows the name? It's, it is, Mjolnir, it's, it's uh, I don't know what that culture is. So he's given this hammer because he's worthy. And no one else is worthy, so if anybody else tries to pick up his hammer, it doesn't work. And so in the second Avengers movie called Age of Ultron, all of them have come together to kind of have a party, and they're sitting in this room, and they're talking about his hammer. And they start joking, and he says, none of you can pick up the hammer because you're not worthy. And so all of them start taking turns. Iron Man takes a turn. Uh, They just all start doing this. Well, there's one character named Steve Rogers. Who knows who Steve Rogers is? Captain America. He reaches down, I am too, he reaches down and he, he touches the hammer and it moves a little bit. And Thor's face kind of just goes, because Thor thought, I'm the only one who's worthy. I was given this hammer to wield it. And so later on in the movies, the big bad villain comes and he wipes out half of all living creatures with just a snap. And these heroes are trying to put things back together and try to fix the problems. And all of a sudden, this big baddie, his name's Thanos, shows up with this huge army. And you've got this little small ragtag team of heroes who have been beat up and discouraged. And Thor, Thor has lost his hammer. It's no longer there, but he gets this other one. It's a long story on that. Just know his hammer's there. And he's fighting the baddie guy. He's fighting the bad guy. And he's getting bested. And he's about to get stabbed by the bad guy. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the hammer comes and knocks him in the back. And he turns around, and Captain America's holding the hammer. And Thor's like, yes! He's like excited now. Before, he was like sad that somebody else might be worthy. But now Captain America has shown himself worthy, and he's got the ability to hold this hammer. Now, worthy is a loaded word, is it not? Being worthy of something means that you have earned a right to something. Being worthy means that you have a place of authority and a place of prestige. Does it not? I mean, have you ever used the word worthy in any way to describe someone in your life? I mean, I could look at my son and say, son, you are worthy to come into my bedroom and sit on the bed with me. I could say that. Uh, or I could say, you know, you're worthy to ride in my car. That's, that sounds arrogant, doesn't it? Because the word worthy should be used very selectively. The way they use it in Marvel Comics, they've destroyed the word. Because the word worthy, to give something worth, means it's other than. So when we pick up in chapter uh, 5, verse number 1, I want you to listen to what he says. Coming back to that court of heaven, he says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is, what's the word there? Worthy. That word worthy is going to appear five times in total between uh, chapter 4 and chapter 5. Once in chapter 4 in the song, 
and four times in this chapter. Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? Now, here's John. You've got to be with John. Now, John's like, oh, man. You know, usually when God was going to give a message, he would speak to a human and that human would write it down and deliver it. No, this is different. I mean, here is, here is the father sitting on the throne. And the scroll is sitting on top of his right hand. The, the preposition there means on top of, on. And he's sitting there in the place of authority. Where does Jesus sit according to scripture? Right hand. Where is this scroll sitting? On his right hand. It's sitting there. And it's written on the inside, which means it has content. And it's also written on the outside, meaning it is saturated with the prophetic word of God. And it is sealed with seven seals, not one, but seven. It is secured divinely. No one else can open this scroll. And so the, Lord, the angel proclaims in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break its seals? And then verse 3 introduces this problem. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or look into it. He just went through all of the creative order and there is no one found that is worthy to deliver this message. There's no one worthy to even touch the scroll. There's no one worthy to utter the words. John, who has been lifted up in the spirit, caught up into the heaven, has walked through the door, has taken all of heaven in. He's salivating, waiting. So, man, what is in that scroll? No created thing is worthy. And you have to let that phrase sit for just a few minutes. Because one of the problems in the American church today and in this world is arrogance. Thinking more of ourselves than we ought to. And we forget the words of Romans 3.23 that says that no one, no one, Has glorified God. All have fallen short. So here you are. You're John. You've already had one vision. Where he said write. You remember that? Every church. In two and three he said. To this church. And he said write. In the second church he said write. In the third church. So I mean. Maybe John thought he was supposed to start writing something. But no, this is a different vision. He's called up into the heaven and he's waiting. Here's the scroll. He's like, I don't even have to write. He's just going to, is he going to hand it to me? Until that angel said, nope. There's no one worthy. And so verse number four, what is he, what's the response that John gives? Then I began to uncontrollably cry greatly. Because there was no one found worthy to open the book or to look into it. I want that tension to sit for a few moments. Because I think to, to jump ahead too much 
really takes away the thrust of what the emotional context of this verse is getting at. John, in expectancy, wants to know what's in that scroll. He believes that that is why God has brought him into heaven. And there's a lot of theories about what was inside of that scroll. One, one author said that it was a last will and testament. That in other words, that once this thing was written, it was going to, to give to creation what is written in the will. Another author said that it was a deed, that it was God's deed to creation. I believe because of what's going to happen from that point on in, in chapter 6 to the end of the book of Revelation, it is the divine, sovereign plan of God for the end of time. And the reason it is sealed up isn't so much to protect the scroll from us opening it, but to protect us from what was going to come out of the scroll. Until the appointed time, which is coming nigh in chapter 6, when those seals would be broken and the words of that scroll would start coming to pass. It's not a happy story. But God sent Jesus to this earth to redeem man and now he's about to sanctify the earth. Are y'all with me? Because it's kind of heavy, because then we get to verse number 5, what you just read. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Now, here's what I think about this. John wasn't looking. I, I don't know how you cry. But, but some of you ladies could teach us men how to cry. Probably cry better than we cry because, I mean, I, I sometimes get kind of choked up. I think y'all have, have heard me cry one time in a sermon, right? I don't cry a lot. But I want you to think about when you had kids or grandkids or you may have seen kids, like when they get upset, <laughs> you can't even get words out of them. They're so choked up. I mean, they're just like they can't speak. And I, I, I know that's a little bit of a dramatization of what's going on with John, but John's upset. And I think he dropped his head and, and he hears one of the elders. And I think it's key that we note that this is one of the elders. The elders aren't just over there like robots going, uh, uh, they're not like over there just kneeling down, picking their crown up, taking it off, throwing it down, picking it up, throwing it down. Remember they respond to the singing of the four living creatures. But now we have an interaction between one of the elders and John. Which is why one of the reasons why I believe that they are heavenly beings. That they're not, I don't believe that they're the redeemed. That's just me. I, that's personal opinion. Personal opinion. Don't, we, can disagree, we can agree to disagree, right? If you say, no, 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 no. It's 12 from Israel and 12 from the apostles. Great. Go ahead. Go with that. text doesn't say that, though. It doesn't. The text does not identify them in chapter 4. Anything else is a theory. But they're heavenly beings. And now this heavenly being is speaking to him and says, Stop weeping. Because, wait a minute, there is someone worthy. Now John, who wrote his own gospel, is the only one who ever referred to Jesus as the Lamb. John the Baptist was in the wilderness. Do you all remember the story? And he's talking about that there was one coming who, he says, I baptize you with water, but there's someone coming after me who will baptize you with fire and the Holy Spirit. He said, I'm not even worthy to lace his shoes. 
even though he's my cousin. But then he shows up, and in John chapter 1, as he's standing there with this throng of people, here comes Jesus, and he knows why Jesus is coming. And does anybody remember what he says? It's only in John's gospel. Behold, what does he say? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Because they knew what a lamb was. A lamb was a small, a small sheep. Which in here it's going to be kind of strange how they describe it. But it's a small sheep and they would take and sacrifice lambs. Specifically during Passover. They would take a perfect lamb with no spots and blemish. If you remember the story of the Passover from Exodus, they would sacrifice that lamb. And what were they commanded to do, each house, with the blood of that lamb? Put it on the, lamp, on the, on the, on the top of the post and the, and the door post. And when the death angel came through, what did it do? It passed over. So now you've got this appearance. And I think John looks up, and in verse number 6, he says, And I saw between the throne." with the four living creatures and the elders and the lamb standing as if slain. Slain things don't stand. That's an oxymoron. Sometimes I feel like an oxymoron. No, I'm serious. It's an oxymoron. Dead things don't stand. But I don't think he looked up and saw a lion. I think he looked up and saw a lamb. The angel or the elder told him it's the lion, the root But when he looked up, what John saw was a lamb. And this lamb specifically, he said, had seven horns, seven eyes. And then tells you in the text what that represented. Which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Wait a minute. In chapter 4, we saw that there were seven flames in front of the throne of God. And now we see that spirit resting on the lamb. Beautiful picture of the Trinity. The Father sitting on the throne with the scroll in his right hand. The Lamb coming out worthy to be able to take the scroll led by the Holy Spirit of God. All together in one picture. Isn't it beautiful? Because, point one, if you didn't fill it in, no created thing is worthy. But the reality is, the Lamb is worthy. The Lamb is worthy. He's the only one who is worthy. He's the only one who who, could be worthy. But why is he worthy? What makes the lamb worthy? Well, I want you to, let me read on. And I actually am tracking good on time tonight. Man, look at that. He says, and when he had taken, he went and he took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. That's pretty, pretty arrogant. Unless you are worthy. You'll catch that. Like, no one in that court went up and said, Hey, God, can I borrow that scroll for a minute? I need to scratch my back. No, nobody did that. Nobody was foolish enough to walk up to the one who's sitting on the throne that is like a blazing fire, surrounded with red, surrounded with a rainbow of green, sitting on a sea of glass, four living creatures who are continually crying, Holy, 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 four, 24 elders who are falling down, casting their crowns, No one would run up and try to grab that scroll because no one has access. Now remember our study in Hebrews? Jesus earned the right to enter into the most holy place of heaven because he sacrificed himself willingly on the cross and died. And now he's walked into heaven 
And if you can remember, if you look back, let me, let me just kind of go dip, 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 back to that picture. Oh, I'm really messing things up. There it is. The lamb is in the center of the court. He's not in this picture. He's front and center. Why, though? What is it about the lamb that made it possible? What is it about the lamb that makes him worthy? Why don't you listen to their song? Because it says, And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Let me come back to that in a minute and and talk about the harps and the bowl, okay? But I want you to listen to the new song. The old song said, Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory, honor, and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. They don't replace the song. Now they have a different object. This is what he says. Worthy are you. Great are you. You have weight and have earned this place to take the book, break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign on the earth. I want you to see four. Say four. So we'll make sure you're still awake. Four things that they sing that qualifies the Lamb, Jesus Christ, to be worthy to open this scroll. The first one was that he was slain. The first one is that he was slain. It said, you were slain. Well, how was he slain? How was the Lamb slain? He died on the cross. He spilled his blood willingly. He suffered an awful, awful death. But because he was slain, because he paid the penalty of sin once for all, now he stands worthy. Y'all see that? No one else could have done this except one person, the Son of God. The one who in chapter 4 was missing from the description. Did you catch that? Talked about him who sits on the throne and the seven flames that represented the Holy Spirit. But Jesus was missing in the picture. The Son of God was not in the picture in Revelation 4. Now he is. He has appeared. And the reason he's worthy to appear and stand there is because he died. Remember Psalm 110 where, Jesus, where the Messiah would be described as the prophet, the priest, and the king? Well, he's been described here no differently. He's taking the scroll God's not giving this message to just any mortal man. He's giving it to the Son of Man to deliver this prophecy. He's a priest because he has died and the blood has been... He's walking in with the blood on him. Come on, guys, this is good. He's walking into the presence of God covered and drenched in his own blood that he poured out so that he could do that. And he's the king because the elder described him as the Lion of Judah. The promise of God made thousands and thousands of years ago that someone would rise up from Judah's loins to be the king. Someone would come from the lineage of David to be the king. And now he's standing here. The second reason that he's he's granted this is because he bought redemption. He bought redemption. He says, you redeemed, you purchased for God your uh, blood, by your blood, men from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. That's one reason why I believe the 24 elders are not a part of that. Why would they be singing a song 
and not include themselves and not say, for we have been. Y'all, does that make sense? If these, were, if these were humans, would they be part of this group that had been purchased? Again, I'm just telling you, that's my theory. My theory, I'll hold to it. But they're singing to the Lamb, you did this for the people of the nations. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. Third reason is he's created a kingdom of priests. Now, why is this important? Because that's exactly what he said to the Israelites in Exodus 19. When he was instituting the old covenant with Israel, he said, I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests. Are you with me? Wait a minute, that actually sounds a little bit what 1 Peter 2, 9 says. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What is the purpose of a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation? To proclaim the excellencies of God. Wait a minute, that sounds like 411. Worthy are you, O God, our creator, receive honor, glory, and power, for you created all things. So he created a kingdom of priests, but you know what else he created? He allowed them to rule. He allowed them to rule. Remember the promise to the church of Laodicea? The last church we studied in in chapter 3, he said, To him who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my Looking forward, I believe, to the millennial reign, the consummated kingdom, where the redeemed of God will sit on thrones and rule over the earth. God's original intended plan for creation. What did he tell Adam and Eve to do? Multiply and rule over the earth. The command hasn't changed. It's just got to be redeemed. The earth has to be purified. And that's what's about to happen. And so, this last point, the reaction is to worship the Lamb. Listen to verse 11 through 14. There's really not a lot of commentary on this part because it's pretty straightforward. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them were ten thousands of ten thousands and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, and I want you to notice as I read this verse how many times the word and occurs because there's a reason for that. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing, now it goes to another level, it's, that is, which is on hev- in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea. Everywhere they looked for someone worthy is now crying out to the one who is worthy. And said to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now it's an inclusive praise of the Father and the Son. Be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and they worshipped him. The word order for these attributes is important. And the reason that it says and, 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 and is because, number one, in the original language, they're there. But the translator could have just put commas, couldn't they? Well, there, there's actually a literary delight, uh, device 
where when you do this, like, let me give you an example. Let me just pick on Micah. Micah's not in here, my son. Micah, I need you to pick up your room and clean your clothes and wash your clothes and vacuum your floor and dust your dresser. I could say, Micah, I need you to clean your room, dust your dresser, and wash clothes. The use of those of the conjunction and is a literary device that heightens each one of those things. So let me read them to you again. Power, riches, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. You realize that the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, has need of nothing. He is exhaustively supplied. So why worship him? What need does any of our worship worship give to the Lord? Does the Lord need our worship? Let that one hover on on you for just a moment. Does he need our worship? Huh? He, He created us to do so. I actually need to worship. I need to worship because I'm fulfilling my creative order in doing so. When I refrain from worship, what I'm saying, Lord, you're not worthy. But now, wait a minute. Don't don't take this down to say, well, worship is only singing. That's not what we're... And worship isn't just crammed into 20 minutes on a Sunday morning. That's not what worship... Worship is the reflection of lifestyle of me proclaiming the greatness of his name. I do that in my words. I do that in my deeds. I do that with my pocketbook. I don't carry a pocketbook, by the way. I will carry a wallet. Um, I do that with, with, with people I interact with. My lifestyle ought to be one of worship that points back to the worthiness of Jesus Christ. And my question tonight as we read through that simply is this. Is he worthy? There is no one worthy but God. The reason that the Lamb can be worshipped along with the Father is because He's co-equal as God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But He's worshipped in the court in chapter 5 because He earned the worthiness. He shed His blood. Are you following? He shed His blood for you when you didn't deserve it. He shed His blood for you when you were running away from Him in rebellion. He shed his blood for you when you were steeped in your sin. Whether you committed a sin one time or 10,000 times, he died for you. So he could create you and me to be a kingdom of priests. What does a priest do? A priest does the work, the liturgy of service in worship. And he's promised for the redeemed that will reign and will rule. That's not a gift, that's a responsibility. All because the Lamb is worthy. Now, I don't know if that's what the scroll looks like. That, that's the best historical depiction that people could make. I actually like what one author described. He said that the scroll is rolled up and there's a seal. And when he breaks the first one, it unrolls. And there's another seal. And that one's broken and then it unrolls again. And it just keeps further revealing because what we're going to get is the seven seals broken and that's what we're going to talk about when we come in the next time but for tonight i have some application questions for you that i want you to process over the next the next week just to think about 
Maybe you could go by that journal and write these questions in there and kind of answer. But if Jesus is worthy, before you can answer the rest of the question, you have to ask yourself in your heart, is Jesus worthy? Not worthy to me, because I actually don't bring anything of worth to, the, to God. My righteousness is filthy rags before the Lord. But is he worthy of my praise and my thanks? Is he? He is. But he's more than worthy. Well, then how am I aligned with him in word, in practice, and in deed? Number two, does this scene, does this scene of the Lamb standing in the court of heaven being worshipped, does it in any way change how I view worship? It may not for you. Maybe those of you that are joining us online, I would want to ask you the question, how does knowing the worth of Christ change the way you worship? How does it change knowing that you come into, we come into this, this, this room on a Sunday morning and, and we have that opportunity to be invited to worship together. If we all sat back down on that pew, do you realize that there's millions of beings in the heavenly throng that's worshiping him all the time? He doesn't need our worship. But isn't it great that we get to participate with them? And finally, how can worship be evangelistic? I believe the purpose of worship here on the side, this side of glory is to glorify God so that other people can hear about that glory. To fire us up, to remind us of the love of Christ and what he's done so that when we go out of these doors, we live a life that reflects the gospel. Father, as we break tonight and we go home, Lord, I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful it speaks louder than anything we could ever say or do. But God, this one's, this one's heavy. These two chapters are calling us to a deeper experience of worship with you in our lifestyle. Yes, I'd love it in, in this room when we come together to sing. God, I, I want us to all give everything we have to that. But not just in the emotion. But God, in the spirit. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom you said that you're a spirit, so we worship you in spirit and truth. God, that's the kind of worship we want. God-honoring worship that points back to the gospel, that points back to you. So, Lord, as we leave tonight, let these words resonate with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, guys, y'all have a great week. Come back next week, and it gets really fun. I mean, it was already fun.